0: Let's pray together. Father, we pray for your help now. We ask that you would cause us to feel your holiness and your power and your love. And we pray that you would cause our hearts to respond with gratitude, And praise. And Lord, we ask that the news of what you have done for us in Christ Jesus and our contemplation of what you have done for us in creation, that you've made us, that you've created us to enjoy you. Lord, we pray that this would have a transforming impact on the way that we think about our lives and on the way that we. Respond to others on the way that we think about death. And, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be those who, who know you, who live for you, who experience you, and who recognize that there is nothing in all of reality that comes close to your great worth. So change us, Lord, as we encounter you through the word that you've inspired, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I would invite you to open the Bible this morning, and if you didn't bring one, there's one in the, in the back of the pew in front of you, and I would invite you to turn this morning to Psalms 99 and 100. We will be looking this morning at Psalms 99 and 100. And while you turn there, I, I would like to just tell you a a little bit about um, something I read this week uh, called a redshift I don't know if you've ever heard of this I'd never heard of this before um, once again I was reading one of my son's textbooks it's this is a little book called it couldn't just happen and um, um, apparently when a light source is far enough away from us Paul is smiling uh, he calls our rocket scientist our resident rocket scientist. He knows all about, all about this, and I'll, I might get some correction later because this is not my field. So there's there's my caveat if I say something wrong. Apparently, when a light source is far enough away, and and if it's moving away from us, uh, the 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 wavelength of the light changes. And you know, there's a spectrum of light, and what happens is the 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 wavelength of the light moves from where it is toward the red end of the spectrum and they call this a red shift and the astrologers that study this as a result of their their contemplation of this they believe that the red shift means that galaxies 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 are traveling away from us at 100 million miles an hour that's massive that there are these galaxies out there moving away from us, and they're so large that even as they move an incremental bit, they're still moving at this, this rate of speed that is just beyond our ability to even conceive. Another thing that, that, that many uh, scientists have concluded as a result of this redshift shift is, is that because the universe is expanding this way, uh, this author refers to it exploding outward at tremendous speeds. This indicates that there had to be a beginning to this. There had to be a starting point. And, and then, you know, of course, in the scientific theory, that takes you back to the Big Bang. But then the question would be well, what started that? What started that? And what started it in such a way that all of this perfect orderliness would result? So I, I introduce that because, because we need to contemplate, in order to understand the psalm that is in front of us, we need to contemplate the awesome power of the living God. I would invite you to look with me at Psalm 99, verse 1. This verse is actually, it's, it's, it's a, a piece of um, poetry that's often referred to as parallelism. And, and what that means is that the two lines of this verse are going to have matching elements. So the first statement, the Lord reigns. The the one we're talking about, the the Bible announces, is the God who created this massive universe that is so perfectly well-ordered, that is astonishingly beautiful. And, And this text is asserting that that God reigns. And I would invite you for a moment to consider the placement of this psalmist in his historical situation. And, and the reason I bring this up is because for him to assert this is an act of faith. Because when the psalmist writes this, j- just in the same way, if somebody were to assert this today, if somebody were to say today, God reigns, there'd be all kinds of people saying, well, it doesn't look like that. There's a lot of evidence to the contrary. There are a lot of theories that would explain it some other way. And the psalmist is dealing with the same realities. The psalmist is making an assertion that flies in the face of the predominant prevailing understandings of his day. The Lord reigns. And then look at the next phrase. Let the peoples tremble. You know, if we, were to be, if we were to find ourselves genuinely and truly in the presence of the God that made this world, this would not be a response that we would have to try to bring up out of ourselves. This would be a natural outworking of experiencing this God. Okay, so I told you this was a parallel statement. Uh, the next line of Psalm 99, verse 1, He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. That's parallel to the Lord reigns. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. What's this talking about? Well, if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, you know that when Israel uh, first constructed the tabernacle and later the temple, uh, there, was, there was a holy place that was basically inside the building And then within the holy place, there was another smaller, perfectly cube-sized room that was referred to as the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, they placed the Ark of the Covenant. And then they were instructed that on, on both sides of the Ark were to be these cherubim. And, and one, uh, the cherubim have two wings. One wing is touching the, the wall on one side, and the other wing is meeting the other cherubim in the middle. And then the other cherubim is touching the wall on the other side and meeting the other in the middle. So the ark is often referred to as the footstool of God's feet, and God is often referred to as being enthroned upon the cherubim because the Holy of Holies is conceived of as the throne room of God. So, the Lord reigns, and then parallel with that, he, is in, he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the peoples tremble, and then parallel with that, let the earth quake. So again, we're, we're dealing with a situation where God has he's shown up, and His presence causes this disruptive result where the earth itself quakes in response to the massive weight of God's presence, and then in keeping with with these ideas, uh, verse two asserts, "The Lord is great in Zion." And the reason for the reference to Zion here is because the city of Jerusalem is referred to as Zion, the city of David, and that's where the temple is, and that's where the Holy of Holies is. So that's where God is is enthroned. The Lord is great in Zion; He is exalted over all the peoples. And now verse 3 gives us a point of application. This is is telling us how to respond to the knowledge of the living God, an experience of the living God, verse 3. Let them praise Your great and awesome name. So in response to to this description of God reigning, this, this assertion of His greatness, In Zion, there's a call for all people to respond to this God by praising His great and awesome name. And all of that, all of this is grounded by this assertion at the end of verse 3, Holy is He. And I want to say just a word about this concept of God being holy. What this means is that God is altogether set apart. God is totally and completely devoted to his own character and and we're going to see in this next little unit this you notice at the end of verse 3 you've got the words holy is he that marks the end of the first unit of this psalm verses 1 through 3 and then look at the end of verse 5 holy is he that marks the end of the second unit of the psalm and then look at the end of verse 9 for the Lord our God is holy that's gonna mark the end of the third unit and each one of these units has a distinctive statement to make The first statement in the the first three verses there is telling us that the Lord is holy in His reign. The next statement in verses 4 and 5 is going to speak to God's justice and His his righteousness. And and that's directly related to His holiness. Because God's holiness comes from His character. It, It flows out of who He is. He is altogether and completely devoted to who he is in his righteousness and justice and steadfast love. And that results in him being set apart from everything else, him being holy. And that takes us naturally into verse 4. Verse 4 says, The king in his might loves justice. Uh, this This is important for us Because we live in a world where, not so much here. This is one of the the less corrupt places in the world. Though if we we started digging, we could probably find our share of corruption. But, But in many places of the world, you've got this phrase that you'll be familiar with. Might makes right. If you're the strong guy, if you're the guy with the guns, if you're the guy with the right connections to the right people, whatever you decide that's going to be right, that's what's going to be right. But look at what this statement says. The king, that's talking about God, in his might, we're talking about the almighty God, loves justice. This is, not, this is not might makes right. This is might loves right. And this takes us back to the holiness of God. I mean, I'm sure you've heard that phrase um, that, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, not with God. Not with the living God. With the living God, he loves justice. And we should think about what justice is because there's a lot of confusion about it in our culture. Uh, last week I was reading this article in the paper uh, with a, a, a scholar, an academic named Jonathan Haidt. And this guy's not a Christian. This guy's a, a liberal. Um, he, he's a guy who... who um, believes that, that uh, um, gay marriage is a good thing. He believes a lot of things that we would disagree with. But, but listen to what he says about justice. This is not somebody that we would agree with, but I, I think on, on many things, but on, on these things, he's right. He says, a generation ago, social justice was understood as equality of treatment and opportunity. So good so far. So far so good. Then he goes on, today, justice means equal outcomes. You hear the difference there? Equal, equality of treatment and opportunity. If we just put this on the baseball field, that means all the pitchers throw from the same, dif- same distance from the plate, right? And, and the umpire behind the plate, he's got the st- same strike zone for both teams, that's equal treatment, equal opportunity. Both teams are going to get a pitcher out there. Both teams are going to get the opportunity to, 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 to compete. Equal outcome means somehow we're going to make it where both teams win. You, can't, you cannot achieve equality of outcomes. It is impossible in this world. And if we're talking about baseball, it wouldn't be any fun either, would it? My son's teams, it's amazing. We, we haven't played very many games so far. Uh, but Luke's team has tied two games and Jed's team has tied another game, right? We've had three three ties. Let's have a winner. Let's have a winner. Justice justice in our world today is often referred to as equality of outcome. That just doesn't correspond to, to reality. Equality of outcome is not justice. Justice is equality of treatment. Equality before the law. The king in his might, God loves justice. And then look what he says here in verse 4. You, the psalmist confesses to God, you have established equity. What this is saying to us is that we know what justice is. We know what equity is because God has built these things into reality. Um, th- this psalmist, he's, he's saying... That when God at last reigns, when he, when he has brought his rule to bear and everybody realizes it, this is going to result in praise, not justified insurrection. Because God is not going to be some cosmic tyrant that it would be right to rebel against him. God is a strong king. Who loves justice. He is the one who has established uprightness. This means that the God of the Bible has defined what straightness is. The God of the Bible has defined what righteousness is. And so no one can object to the reign of the true and living God with any claim to moral superiority. You you can object to his reign. You can rebel against it. But what that's going to do is put you in the wrong. You cannot do that and be right. All resistance to the God of the Bible is evil because He, the rightful Lord, is righteous. The text says, You have established equity, and then it goes on to say there in verse 4, You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Jacob is a way of referring to the people of Israel. Israel. And what what the psalmist is saying is, by revealing the law to Israel, by warning them of the consequences of their disobedience to the law, and then by punishing them, and by saving them on various occasions, God has executed justice and righteousness within the people of Israel, in Jacob. And again, he responds in verse 5 in a way similar to verse 3. The psalmist is telling us how we ought to respond, before I read this, um, let, me, let me just invite you to consider what life would be like if you were in a, in a, a radically unjust situation. Um, I had a friend named uh, Gabriel who grew up in Romania uh, under communism. The, the, the country was communist until he was 14 years old. And the ruler, the communist dictator of Romania, a man named Ceausescu, or, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, this was a man who would not wear a suit twice because he feared that, um, uh, someone would, would put some sort of poison into the material. And so once he had worn it once right off the rack, he would never wear it again. And this was a man who insisted on the finest suits in the world. So this is a man who wears a new suit, like a $3,000 suit every day. Meanwhile, his people are starving. Gabriel would tell me that in the middle of winter, Romania is a cold place, in the middle of the winter, sometimes the government would just shut off the electricity because they didn't have any more money to run the electricity. Meanwhile, the president is wearing a new $3,000 suit every day, and he's building this enormous uh, building. He he was trying to construct the largest building in the world. He called it the people's palace, uh, when really it was his palace. And, and I, said to, I, was, I said, Gabriel, how did you survive? In the middle of the winter, there's snow on the ground. They shut off the electricity. You have no heat. He said, we would just get together and find any scrap wood that we could and, and, and start fires and try to keep ourselves warm. That is radical injustice. And then imagine the relief that you would feel if you suddenly found yourself under someone with absolute power and ultimate infinite in goodness and love, you would want to respond as verse 5 prescribes. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. We, we, we have a desire, an innate desire for justice. And we feel a natural sense of relief when we experience it. Um, This reference to worship at his footstool, this takes us back to that uh, he sits enthroned upon the cherubim back back in verse 1, and the cherubim were overshadowing the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant is the footstool for God's feet. At least it's the the preliminary one. Isaiah 66, 1, the Lord says, it's as though the Lord is saying, I know you think the Ark in the Holy of Holies is my footstool, but let me tell you what my footstool really is. The earth is my footstool. Footstool, And then he says, what is the house that you would build for me? What he's saying is, I am king over the whole earth, and the whole earth is going to be my temple. And there's a problem here for us. The problem here for us is that if justice is applied, if it's executed, if righteousness is pursued, we are all in big trouble we are in big trouble because we have not done what we knew was right and we have not attained to a perfect standard of obedience so so every one of us has committed sins I've sinned you've sinned we've all sinned we are all equal in our need before the holy God and in an an attempt to help us understand what the implications of this are, I want to read to you a portion of James Joyce's book. Uh, It's it's called A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. And in this book, James Joyce is describing a saint's visionary experience of hell. So let me just be clear here. Um, I don't want anybody in this room to go to hell. I don't want any of you to experience what I'm about to read. And, And there's a way to avoid it. But, but let's, consider, uh, let's consider this. Joyce describes this saint. He says, He stood in the midst of a great hall, dark and silent, save for the ticking of a great clock. The ticking went on unceasingly. And it seemed to this saint that the sound of the ticking was the ceaseless repetition of the words, Ever, never, ever, never. Ever to be in hell. Never to be in heaven. Ever to be shut off from the presence of God, never to enjoy the beatific vision. Ever to be eaten with flames, gnawed by vermin, goaded with burning spikes, never to be free from those pains. Ever to have the conscience upbraid one, the memory in rage, the mind filled with darkness and despair, never to escape ever to curse and revile the foul demons who gloat fiendishly over the misery of their dupes, never to behold the shining raiment of the blessed spirits, ever to cry out of the abyss of fire to God for an instant, a single instant of respite from such awful agony, never to receive, even for an instant, God's pardon ever to suffer, never to enjoy, ever to be damned, never to be saved, ever, never, ever, never. What a dreadful punishment. An eternity of endless agony, of endless bodily and spiritual torment, without one ray of hope, without one moment of cessation, of agony limitless in intensity, of torment infinitely varied, of torture that sustains eternally that which it eternally devours, of anguish that everlastingly preys upon the Spirit while it racks the flesh, an eternity every instant of which is itself an eternity of woe. Such is the terrible punishment decreed for those who die in mortal sin by an almighty and a just God." If He is almighty, if He is holy, if we if we have sinned against Him, that is what we deserve. That is justice. But that's not the end of the story, praise God. On this day, we celebrate, and on every Sunday, every Sunday, we celebrate the fact that this God sent His Son, Himself God, who came in the flesh and lived the righteous life that we could not have lived, that none of us have lived. And thereby, by living that righteous life, He executed justice and righteousness. And then, for our sake, in our stead, as we said Friday night, God made Him who knew no sin, the Lord Jesus, to be sin, For our sakes, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And there's this glorious exchange where the Lord Jesus takes our sin. And when we repent of our sin, when we turn away from it, when we acknowledge that it's evil, and when we hope in Him, God gives us His righteousness. And then, as, as Tim Keller said, in one ripping stroke as Christ died on the cross... The justice of God was satisfied and the love of God was ultimately displayed as Christ died for sinners. So if you're outside of Christ, if you, if you stand away from Jesus, you are in danger of this awful everlasting justice. But if you place yourself in Christ by turning from sin, by by bowing the knee to Him as Lord, and by hoping in Him for salvation. Things that we would urge you to do today. If you will do that, then you can be saved. Uh, this, this hope of forgiveness is the, the topic of the last three verses, uh, four verses of Psalm 99. When Psalm 99.6 says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. The psalm begins to speak of the way that under the old covenant, through the the sacrificial system that was mediated by Israel's priests, God made a way for sinners to be forgiven of their sins. Then he goes on, he says, Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. This is telling us that God in His awesome justice is not detached from us in unconcerned and and iron-fisted harshness. No, He listens to entreaties. When we call upon Him, He will answer us. They called to the Lord, verse 6 goes on to say, and He answered them. And then verse 7 alludes to the way that God came down on Mount Sinai in the pillar of fire and cloud. And it says, in the pillar of cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. Those are the laws that Moses mediated to Israel. And then the psalmist says, O Lord our God, you answered them. And then these glorious, beautiful words. You were a forgiving God to them. Have you ever dealt with someone that was implacable? Someone that that had perceived whether you wronged them or not, they perceived that you had wronged them. I mean, I can think of people like this in my life right now. People that I would love to be reconciled to. But but for whatever reason, this person is implacably disposed toward me. That's not the way that God relates to us. If if we will acknowledge you know, for, for forgiveness, for for a genuine apology to take place and for genuine forgiveness to happen, the person in the wrong really needs to acknowledge the wrong that they've done. And they need to acknowledge the gravity and the depth of the hurt that they've caused. And then if an apology can be offered in that spirit, if someone can come and say, I know how desperately wrong I was. And and I know how grievous this was to you. Then under those circumstances, Someone can say, I forgive you. That's how we have to approach the Lord. We have to recognize how wrong we've been. And when we do, he will prove himself to be a forgiving God. But he's also just. He's not a cosmic pushover. Look at the next lines. But an avenger of their wrongdoings. God is a good father who disciplines his wayward children and he's a just judge who those who don't come grieved and repentant seeking mercy justice will be done and again there's this response in verse 9 that in many ways repeats verse 5 exalt the lord our god and worship at his holy mountain for the lord our god is holy so the psalm is, is um, instructing us on how we ought to respond to what, is it, what it is revealing. And, and I think that the psalm is presenting to us the king reigning, and the king who reigns is the holy judge, and the king who reigns, once we know the way the story turns out, the king who reigns turns out also to be the interceding priest, the Lord Jesus And then as if in response to Psalm 99, Psalm 100 continues this vein of thought. And what Psalm 100 is going to begin to do is give further instructions on how to respond to God. And what I want to do is walk through these instructions and then come back and and try to help us think through how we can feel and, and desire to do what this Psalm calls us to do. So you'll notice that there's a, a superscription on Psalm 100. It says, a psalm for giving thanks. And then in verse 4, it says, enter his gates with thanksgiving. So just to put this in your mind, how do we stir ourselves up to feel gratitude? This, this psalm is written with the assumption that you're going to feel gratitude. How do we cause ourselves to feel gratitude? Look at what the psalm said. This psalm is going to give us seven commands. Look at verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Okay, so so it's commanding us, and it's assuming that we want to do this. Verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Those are two of our seven commands. Uh, the word serve here, it can refer to the kind of thing that we do in this worship service where we're serving the Lord by worshiping Him. It can also refer to the kind of thing that we do in our everyday lives, the work that we do. In in the work that we do, we're called to to do do this work with gladness for the Lord. And then it says there at the end of verse 2, come into His presence with singing. There's our third command. Uh, I told you there are seven of these. That means that the number four is right in the middle. And I think that the the, the ones on either side balance each other. So verse 3 brings us to the fourth one that's right in the middle. Know. Know. This is, this is at the heart of, of becoming someone who feels gratitude, who feels a desire to praise. Know that the Lord, He is God. This is the, this is the, the thing that separates the God of the Bible, from all other gods and all other religions. This is an exclusive claim that, that this God, He alone is God. And then it goes on to say, with some explanation, it is He who made us and we are His. It is He who made us and He made us for Himself. I, 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 wanna, I, wanna, I want you to consider... Just a, a couple of things about the way you are made as a human being. I would invite you to think about the skin on, on your body. Uh, this skin um, is made up of many layers of cells. I'm reading from this textbook of my sons again. And, and it is nearly waterproof. Think about that. You've got this waterproof stuff that grows on the outside of your body. If it gets damaged, it heals itself. Your skin also contains nerve endings that let you feel what is going on outside you. These are so sensitive that you can feel a gentle breeze as well as the painful bite of an insect. And then, in addition to thinking about what's outside, on the outside, on the surface, think about what's on the inside. And, and one thing I would invite you to think about is your heart. And, and just some, some things about your heart here. Reading from, again, from this book by this guy Lawrence O. Lawrence O. Richards. Um, Your heart will pump uh, about 72 times a minute or 40 million times a year. And you never have to think about it. Each day, your heart does enough work to lift your body a mile straight up into the air. Every day, an adult heart pumps blood through 75,000 miles of blood vessels you are fearfully, as the Bible puts it, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. This did not just happen. This is not the result of a cosmic explosion with no guiding hand. Uh, in, in a normal lifetime, your heart will pump about 450,000 tons of blood through your body. This is, this is astonishing, the way, the, way that, the way that God made us. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, verse 3 says, and the sheep of His pasture. What this verse is telling us is that this all-powerful God, this wise God who created us with such dexterity and such wisdom and, and such glorious capacities, He relates to us like a shepherd does to his sheep. He is, he is lovingly tending us. He is lovingly ensuring that we have what we need, that we're protected, that, that we're provided for. And so just as on, in the lead up to this statement in verse 3, no, we've got this come into His presence, moving away from the no. Look at verse 3. Know that uh, I'm sorry, verse 4. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. And all these seven commands are now grounded in verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. The Lord is good. What's His goodness composed of? His everlasting steadfast love. This means that the God of the Bible is not a God who is going to change His mind and stop being loving someday this means that the god of the bible is always going to be loving his steadfast love endures forever and then it goes on to say and his faithfulness to all generations this means that god is not going to change the rules at some point god is not going to move the goalposts. god is not going to decide that some other standard of right and wrong is now the standard of right and wrong the love and the faithfulness will last forever. Now, how do, how do we use these things in a way that, that makes us want to respond the way that Psalms 99 and 100 call us to respond? How do we stir up in our hearts gratitude to God and a desire to praise Him? I want to give you three, three things that, that you can do. And, um, and then with each one of these, I want to elaborate on them a little bit. So um, first, to prompt praise and thanks for God, I would encourage you to try to put God's accomplishment in perspective. And, and what has God, has God accomplished? Well, he's accomplished the world, right? He's created the world, and he's also accomplished redemption. He's accomplished redemption through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, so to put this in perspective, one way to do this is to try to compare what God has done, what the God, what, what the Bible claims God has done, with what other religions claim their gods have done. And and there are religions that have gods, and those gods have not created the world, nor have those gods. I mean, Zeus didn't create the world for the Greeks. Um, there, there are lots of gods that lots of people worship, that that are and and. The power of being the world's creator is not attributed to them. Also, Zeus didn't become incarnate to die for the Greeks, right? And, and what other religion? Allah in, in Islam, he did not decide in order to accomplish salvation for my people, I am going to go live out the righteous life they should have lived and then I am going to take the punishment that they deserved. There is, there is no other religion like this. There is no other God that you can say, oh, he's the same as the God of the Bible. It just doesn't work. That is logically contradictory. So compare what God has done to what other, other so-called gods have done. And then another thing you can do is you can remember how unlikely it was that this would be accomplished. I mean, can you imagine if there were nothing, can you imagine this world? This place is stupendous, right? And then can you imagine God deciding, I am going to set my love on this, these people and I am going to accomplish redemption for them so that they can enjoy my goodness. And then, and then what you can do to put the accomplishment in perspective is you can detail the ongoing results of the feat that God has accomplished. The creation doesn't run out of gas, does it? the world is not winding down this is an ongoing there's an ongoing endless supply of food and oxygen and life for us on this planet it is amazing and then the salvation that god has accomplished it will never be nullified the, the death of jesus is not going to die again the, the author of hebrews tells us and he will never he will never need to be crucified again and then you can note how long the accomplishments will stand. Uh, So that's the first thing. You can try to put the accomplishment in perspective. The second thing. The second thing, you can mull over in your mind how deeply you needed this to happen. How deeply, let's just focus on, on the cross, the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus here. We needed this to happen because the consequences of it not happening are just unbearable. Uh, uh, I could read you another quote from James Joyce that I'm not going to take the time to read that goes into eternity. I'll just briefly summarize it. He says, imagine a block of sand that's that's a million miles cubed. And if once every million years a bird came and took one speck of sand, one little grain of sand and flew away with it when that block that's a million miles wide and a million miles high in every direction, when that block is finally gone, not one instant of eternity will have expired. We desperately need the salvation offered to us in Christ Jesus. We are hereby delivered from physical pain, from psychological distress, from lasting regret, from emotional wreckage, from an unremitting sense of guilt from an everlasting experience of divine displeasure, from unbearable public shame, and from the insufferable happiness of the unfallen angels. We're delivered from from the experience of the regret that would cause. So we deeply needed this. It is an accomplishment like no other. And then lastly, thirdly, we, we want to feel the relief and the wonder that this has been done for us our fears have been removed our penalty has been exhausted our debt which we never could have paid has been it's been paid in full the 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 God who created the world has been reconciled to us so that we enjoy his divine pleasure and not only his pleasure but his blessing We want to feel the relief and the wonder that will cause us to receive the commands in Psalms 99 and 100 and say, yes, Lord, this is how I want to respond to you. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God of the Bible has created in in love. The God of the Bible has accomplished redemption, loving those He redeemed. Dying and rising, Jesus did, in love for us. And He will reign forever in this awesome benevolence, extending His goodness to us for our enjoyment forever. And it's all accomplished because the Lord Jesus, He who was rich, became poor so that we who were poor through His poverty might become rich And God raised Him from the dead because death had no claim on Him. And what a relief it is to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for revealing revealing Yourself to us in creation and in Your Word. And we pray, Lord, that You would give us hearts that feel gratitude, that must be expressed in praise. Help us, we pray. And Lord, I pray that those here that, that, that might not believe, I pray that their doubts would be overwhelmed with your truth. I pray that their questions would be answered. And I pray that their hearts would well up with gladness because of what you've done in Christ. And Lord, those who may seem to be far from you, I pray that you would draw them near. That you might receive praise and thanks in Christ's name forever. Amen.